everybody. Welcome to the podcast, Kid Like Chronicles. Uh, my name is Chelsea. I am a college student at the University of Pennsylvania and an English major. And I'm here with two of my friends and we have started a podcast about children's books. Um, we decided that this was a good idea because we wanted to start like a book club and what better like books to read than things that we loved as a kid and books that we wish we had read as a kid. So today we're starting with a series of unfortunate events, the first book, The Bad Beginning. And then we're going to also talk about the movie starring Jim Carrey and the TV show on Netflix. So first, um, I wanted to have you guys, my fellow co-hosts, introduce yourselves. Okay. Hi, I'm Nikki. I'm a junior at Emory University and I study creative writing. Hello, I'm Hannah, and I go to MTSU, and I'm an animation major. All right, awesome. Nice to meet you guys for the first time. <laughs> it's a real pleasure. Yeah. All right. So first, yeah, I just wanted to give like a little context on a series of unfortunate events, if you guys haven't read it before, because I haven't. This is my first time reading the first book, and this is also Hannah's first time reading the first book. So it is written by... Lemony Snicket. So it says on the cover, who is really Daniel Handler, who was born in 1970 and lives in San Francisco today. Um, he writes all of his kids' books under the pseudonym Lemony Snicket. A series of unfortunate events is a 13 book series. Each book also has 13 chapters. Fun fact, very unlucky. Ooh. And it follows the various misfortunes of the Baudelaire orphans um, as they're being chased by their evil relative Count Olaf who's trying to steal their fortune and places them in great danger every single time. Um, it takes place in an unnamed city in a very vague-ish time period. Uh, seems to be kind of like 20th century Victorian-ish. The first book was published in 1999 and the last book is published was published in 2006 um, and genre-wise it's been classified as gothic fiction which you can tell with the kind of atmosphere that has the dirty rundown mansion that Olaf lives in and whatnot, the constant danger and sadness, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it's also been classified as gothic satire, which is kind of poking fun at all of that stuff, which I think we can definitely see and we'll talk about. So the movie came out in 2004 and then the Netflix TV adaptation came out in 2017. And all of this is evidence to say that you know, this book series is super, super popular. And yeah, I don't know why I never picked it out of the library when I was a kid. So first, we're just going to start with the book and our impressions. So Nikki, you're the only one of us who actually read this book as a kid. So what do you remember about like, what you liked about it when you were a kid? Yes. Um, so I definitely remember it was one of my favorite series that I read as a kid because um, I read a lot of different series, but this one stuck out to me, like, you know, always wanting the next book at the library and when, when it wasn't there, like being really disappointed and stuff like that. It was really fun to read because it was just kind of like quirky and offbeat compared to other books. And it had like that element of mystery running through where you, you had to read all of them to like fully know what was going on. And unfortunately, since I never finished it, I still don't <laughs> know like what all was going on in that world. But it was like super, super exciting, I guess, as a kid to like read a series like that. So I really enjoyed it. So you read like the first 10 books, right? Yeah, there's a possibility that I read like one through 10 and then 12, but not 11 <laughs> or 13, if I remember right. Because again, like if they didn't have the one I wanted at the library, I just got like the one after that. <laughs> Do you remember like why you didn't finish it? No, <laughs> no idea. That happened with many book series for me. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Okay, um, so Hannah, you are approaching this as a new writer, the old wizened age of 20 years old reading this <laughs> kid's book. What did you think about it? Wow, well, first of all, I read the audiobook. <laughs> So I didn't even notice the 13 chapter thing. That's really interesting because the audiobook had 18 parts. <laughs> so I guess it's just structured differently. But I like the audiobook. It was read by Tim Curry, who is a very handsome man who I, <laughs> who I love a lot. <laughs> and I thought the story was very fun. I actually watched the movie like when I was a kid. So I'm familiar with the story. Um, and I love the movie. Definitely different than the book, but 
yeah, it, Lemony Snicket's writing is very like tongue in cheek and very fun. And I usually like that sort of thing. Yeah, so I guess I kind of uh, came into this with the least amount of knowledge, I guess, because I hadn't seen the film or like knew anything about the story basically at all. I just remember when I was in elementary school, like in the library, I saw the covers and I thought it looked really interesting, uh, but I never actually picked it up. But I'm glad that like I got the chance to do it now to see what all the hype was about. I definitely agree with you that like, yeah, I really like Lemony Snicket as like the narrator and being a part of the story. I thought it was so interesting how, you know, like on the back cover and also in the beginning, right? He's like warning you not to like open the book because it's not going to be a happy story. That was, I felt like, like thinking back to what I was like as a kid, that would have piqued my interest immediately. <laughs> like I definitely would have been like, oh, I'm going to be rebellious. Like nothing's going to stop me from reading this. And I guess that's sort of the appeal. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if you guys <clears throat> noticed, but like at the end, there's always a, like a letter to the editor and it's like in Lemony Snicket's character. And he's like, to my editor, like if you want to find the pages for the next book, go meet my assistant in like this telephone box on this street at this time and you have to hurry or like someone might intercept it and we'll lose the story so like he makes it feel like it's like real and I probably was like so blown away by that as a kid <laughs> that's interesting I don't think I actually saw that when I was reading through the book mm -hmm. I did hear it at the end <laughs> I remember like I was just listening to see if there was anything extra. And he was like, we've got to find my research on Dr. Montgomery. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's the snake guy. Yeah. That's the next book. <laughs> so one thing that I wanted to talk about was Lemony Snicket as like kind of a character in the novel. Because um, something that I noticed was his like defining of words, right? Like he often like mm -hmm. has a segue where he's like, oh, this word means this. And sometimes it's like the actual definition, but sometimes it's, you know, something that's kind of interpretive, I guess, and kind of funny. So I noticed that. But then I also thought about the fact that like, there are times when other adults in the story do the same thing, right? Like Mr. Poe says um, in that beginning scene, when he's telling the Baudelaire's like, your parents have died, he's like, they perish in a fire and then he says perish means killed right which is like super stupid like why would he <laughs> do that and then that happens like a couple other times with different adults and you know I I feel like everybody knows that Lemony Snicket is kind of a likable character and the other adults in the story are not super likable so it kind of struck me that they're like kind of doing the same thing but it comes across in different ways yeah and I was wondering like what you guys if you had thoughts about that well, <laughs> I didn't like it very much. <laughs> Every time they had, like, there were like two words and I wrote them down <laughs> that I didn't actually know that they defined in the book. And I thought the purpose of it was like, because it's a kid's book. So they're like, hey, here are some interesting complex words that kids can learn or whatever. <laughs> and I didn't know adroit and I didn't know insipid. And those are the two words I didn't know, but they defined like garlic. <laughs> and I was like, why? <laughs> everyone knows what garlic is but I guess if it's like a plot device it's a little bit more excusable yeah also um just to like interrupt this a little bit maybe we should maybe we should just have like a, a little bit about what happens in this book <laughs> and oh, just yeah. for people who haven't read it although I hope I guess if you are reading this I mean if you're listening to this podcast that would mean that you've read it and are looking for some thoughts spoilers abound yeah <laughs> um but yeah why Nikki do you want to summarize like the book yeah like just briefly everything that happens um what you don't have to do well, everything I mean, well I can give like a very brief overview of it I feel like because not a lot actually happens in the first book that was something I noticed when I was rereading it yeah but anyways yeah it's it's basically like the three kids their parents die in a fire that like destroys their home so they have to like live with someone and they end up in the care of like this evil man named Count Olaf who claims to be their distant relative um and the major like things that happen I guess from there is they have to cook him dinner and <laughs> he doesn't like what they did he ends up like hitting the boy um and then he like introduces his evil plan to have Violet the like girl 
marry him in a play. And at first the orphans aren't sure exactly what's going on, but like through some research, they find out that if he marries her in the play, it'll actually be like a real marriage and then he'll be in charge of their fortune. So that's kind of like his little plot. And they do various things to like try to escape that and they're foiled multiple times. Um, but then it ends up that Count Olaf has their sister as like, what would you call that? Like a like leverage or whatever. Yeah, like a hostage. Um, so they have to go through with the play, but Violet thinks of a loophole. She, she signs a marriage contract with like her non-dominant hand and that ends up like voiding the marriage. So the orphans win the day and Count Olaf is foiled, but he escapes with his accomplices and that's how the book ends. And I think I covered everything major. Yeah, that okay, was cool. great job, Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we're definitely going to talk about the ending because I think that it's really interesting. But mm -hmm. to go back to Lemony Snicket and his definitions, um, yeah, I think it, I thought it was interesting that you thought that it was annoying because yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think it came across that way to me. Because um, yeah, I think in some situations it definitely was just like defining things that probably kids didn't know. Um, but other times I think it almost felt like being included in an inside joke, if that makes sense. Um, so like, I feel like the reason, like obviously when a character like Mr. Poe, the banker guy, like does that kind of thing saying that perish means kill, that's like so condescending. Cause of course <laughs> the, the kids, they understand like that their parents had been killed. Um, so that's kind of like an adult speaking down to a child. Um, but I feel like Lemony Snicket, his stuff made me feel more like he was like including us in, in some sort of like friendly banter. Yeah, and like his like presence as a narrator too. It's like, you know, he's telling us stuff about his life and things like that. And that's, yeah, it's almost like a relationship between like two friends and he's like telling you this story. Um, yeah, and I felt like the definitions were kind of a, a part of that. Yeah, I agree. And one thing I'll add about like when the kind of clueless adults like do the definitions, to me that kind of felt like, and I think this is the thing in other children's books, um, it's like trying to make the kid feel like smart or like good about themselves. So like when Mr. Poe like defines a very basic word and like the Baudelaire's already know it, but also probably the kid who's reading it already knows it. and that makes the kid even feel like elevated above like Mr. Poe and above like, and it makes them feel like on level with adults almost. So it's kind of like, I guess like, I don't know exactly how to word it, but just like giving the kid like that kind of like, haha, like I'm smart and like making them feel like they're like part of it, like you were saying, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there was a passage that I was thinking about looking at where this happens. Um, so I'm gonna try to flip to it. Well, it's kind of like a long-ish scene, I, but I feel like it has like a lot of the things that we're talking about in one. So it might be good to look at it. Mm -hmm. It's it's like the scene where they go to Poe at the bank. So this is like where they're trying to like reach out for help because Count Olaf is literally like abusing them. And then it doesn't go as planned, right? So- yeah. I want us to play the parts just yeah. much, much like Count Olaf and his acting troupe. We can, <laughs> we can, only I had a source to read from. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I can share my screen if you tell me what chapter it's in and I can find it. All right. Um, it's chapter five. What like word Solid. do you want us to start on? I guess probably that graph where it's like Mr. Poe opened his mouth to speak but had to cough into a handkerchief handkerchief oh I think I found it is the first thing he says I'm very busy today yes okay yeah I found it okay okay all right awesome um so right till, yeah till the end of the chapter so okay so there's three people speaking in this so there's Klaus Violet and Mr. Poe so who wants what can I be Mr. Poe yes <laughs> yes <laughs> Yeah, I can read Violet, but does someone also need to read like the narration? Oh, you're totally right. That's true. Okay. Okay, wait. <laughs> oh, that makes it complicated then. Because then I would have to interrupt like your quotes. <laughs> uh, Unless we choose. just read the dialogue, but I don't know if it would like lose details. 
No, I don't think that we should do that. Okay. Okay, wait, how about we try it? Okay, how about this? How about I be the narrator? Okay, Hannah <laughs> is Mr. Poe, and then Nikki, you are class and Violet. Okay. Uh. <laughs> and then everybody just got it. We just got to be ready. Okay. All right. Be ready. Why? Why? Gotta, I'm ready to go. Okay. I am ready. <laughs> I got to be ready to like interrupt you. Okay. You better okay. be ready. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Mr. Poe opened his mouth to speak, but had to cough into a handkerchief before he could begin. <laughs> I'm very busy today, he said, finally. So I don't have too much time to chat. Next time, you should call ahead of time when you plan on being in the neighborhood, and I will put some time aside to take you to lunch. That would be very pleasant, Violet said. And we're sorry we didn't contact you before we stopped by, but we find ourselves in an urgent situation. Count Olaf is a madman, Klaus said, getting right to the point. We cannot stay with him. He struck Klaus across the face. See his bruise? Violet said, but just as she said it, one of the telephones rang in a loud, unpleasant wail. Excuse me, Mr. Poe said and picked up the phone. Poe here, he said into the receiver. What? Yes. 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 No. Yes. Thank you. He hung up the phone and looked at the Baudelaire's as if he had forgotten they were there. I'm sorry, Mr. Poe said. What were we talking about? Oh, yes, Count Olaf. I'm sorry you don't have a good first impression of him. He has only provided us with one bed, Klaus said. He makes us do a great many difficult chores. He drinks too much wine. Excuse me, Mr. Poe said as another telephone rang. Poe here, he said. Seven, 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 six and a half. Seven. You're welcome. He hung up and quickly wrote something down on one of his papers, then looked at the children. I'm sorry, he said. What were you saying about Count Olaf? Making you do chores doesn't sound too bad. He calls us orphans. He has terrible friends. He's always asking about our money. Poco. This was from Sonny. Mr. Poe put his hands to indicate he had heard enough. Children, children he said. You must give yourselves time to adjust to your new home. You've only been there a few days. We've been there long enough to know Count Olaf is a bad man, Klaus said. Mr. Poe sighed and looked at each of the three children. His face was kind, but it didn't look like he really believed what the Baudelaire orphans were saying. Are you familiar with the Latin term in loco parentis? He asked. Violet and Sonny looked at Klaus. The biggest reader of the three, he was the most likely to know vocabulary words and foreign phrases. Something about trains? He asked. Maybe Mr. Poe was going to take them by train to another relative. Mr. Poe shook his head. In loco parentis means acting in the role of parent, he said. It is a legal term, and it applies to Count Olaf. Now that you are in his care, the Count may raise you using any methods he sees fit. I'm sorry if your parents did not make you do any household chores or if you never saw them drink any wine or if you like their friends better than Count Olaf's friends. But these are things you must, that you must get used to as Count Olaf is acting in loco parentis. Understand? But he struck my brother. Look Violet at his face. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's okay. As Violet spoke, Mr. Poe reached into his pocket for his handkerchief and, covering his mouth, coughed many, many times into it. He coughed so loudly that Violet could not be certain he had hurt her. Okay, I think that this is probably <laughs> this is probably a good place to stop um, for now. Okay, so ready to cough. <laughs> so I wanted us to look at this part because, like, for me, this part of the book where they go to like Mr. Poe and like beg for his help and he doesn't listen to them is really the scariest part of the book for me. Um, Cause I remember thinking, like I remember feeling that way as a kid when I felt like I was having a problem or freaking out about something and like adults, people didn't seem to care. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like that's something that occurs literally like every single book is they're always like desperately trying to reach out for help and no one listens to them. and. I think that is part of what makes the books so interesting because it literally feels like they have 
no allies and so like the reader also is like very much on their side and I guess very much on the side of Lemony Snicket because like as you're saying there's so many different ways that he like makes you feel like you're on you're on his side um but literally like no one else in this world is and so yeah it is like a very I guess that's part of like what builds the conflict and like keeps you engaged is like this it really feels like they're in a very like dire situation and you like want to find out like what's going to happen next that's more of like a plot related thing I guess but I do like how we kind of like always just eliminates any allies that the orphans can possibly have to kind of like continue driving home like that conflict. Well, um, did you guys have any like specific things that you wanted to talk about? Uh, there's one thing that I had here, which is just like an offhand comment that I found interesting. One of Count Olaf's like troop members he described, Lemony Snicket described them as like a person who didn't look like a man or a woman. And he also referred to this person as a creature and an it multiple times. And I was like, ooh, Lemony Snicket, <laughs> I don't know if you want to do that. And that was the only like, sometimes you find weird, I guess, I don't know if that's even like problematic. I guess he was just trying to be like, yeah. just like an interesting character, I guess. He was weird. Sure. I I definitely thought about that and just about the way that he described all of the people in the troop. It made me wonder, and I wondered this about Count Olaf too, is like, like, do we really learn more about these people in later books? And is there at, like any point where they are kind of seen as sympathetic characters? Because like, I think from the first book, it's like Count Olaf is just 100% bad. You don't hear anything about his backstory or like why, like why he lives in a decrepit mansion, um, why he's like resorting to crime, things like that. And then like the orphans are very good because, you know, they just lost their parents and they're just trying to survive. And I was wondering if like, if that's how it is throughout like all the books or if there's a way that that kind of dichotomy gets muddled not to give like a super simple answer but I don't remember there ever <laughs> being anything where it like humanized them at all um which is definitely an interesting thing um and I didn't finish the series um <laughs> but I do remember like literally every time it was like the you know Count Olaf and his like friends start to creep up and start to try to like have another evil plot it would always be like yes, Count Olaf, and then they also saw the man with the two hooks, and they saw the two pale-faced ladies, and they saw the large person who's neither man nor woman, and it was it almost just, like, listing them as, like, a set, I guess, and I don't remember there ever being, like, a delve into it, but especially with, like, Count Olaf's backstory, I feel like that's something that's so interesting and has a lot of potential, like, because, yeah, I've never really thought about why he is involved in this way. Yeah. I was wondering if there's like a little bit of a hint at humanization. Um, did the one passage where, you know, after the kids get back from Mr. Poe and then Mr. Poe calls Olaf and is like, hey, the kids were there to visit me and they aren't happy. And then Olaf like ushers them in and gives them oatmeal with raspberries on top. And he said like, I loved raspberries when I was your age. I don't know, that kind of shows a level of empathy or thinking or whatever that he doesn't really show otherwise because he got them because he liked them when he was a kid and that was yeah I just thought that was a strange moment and was wondering if there was going to be like more of that oh I I did this is this is on topic <laughs> I was watching uh, a youtuber I like was also reading this series um when I was reading it for this podcast and she she made a comment that she enjoyed something about a group of struggling actors, like <laughs> harassing like rich kids or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, huh, that's an interesting way to see it. <laughs> like you see Count Olaf as a protagonist somehow. Yeah. Oh, I do not see Count Olaf as a protagonist. <laughs> I mean, I think it's pretty clear. And I, I would actually give that, I think it's one of the critiques, like things I don't like about this book is that it is pretty black and right, white, right? With like him being the villain and not having any reason other than like loving money, I guess. Do you guys think we should read the roast beef scene? Cause I kind of think it's important. I don't know. Well, actually maybe we don't have to read it but I was wondering like, what did you guys think about the fact that 
like Count Olaf actually slapped Klaus. I don't know. This is going into the movie territory a little bit, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I kind of forget how bad the slap is because I'm just picturing like Jim Carrey being silly. And so like, I kind of forget that he like literally abused them a little bit sometimes. Yeah, you know, maybe we can just transition to talking about the films because I think that this is a good place to do it. Mm-hmm. Just like, I think I agree with you that like I like overall the movie and the TV show, really, I think they really lighten up the book because I remember when I was reading it, I didn't really think it was that funny. I definitely didn't think that Count Olaf was funny. And most of the, mostly when I was reading it, I was thinking about like, when I was a kid, I totally would have related to this and felt like scared, I think a little bit, especially the part where Count Olaf slaps them or slaps Klaus, because that felt very real to me and kind of like, I guess a line that I didn't think they were gonna cross. Cause I don't know, like obviously the situation that they're in is really terrible, but it's almost, I don't know, terrible in a way that doesn't seem super real to me until that slap. But I feel like, yeah, in the movie and the TV show, it's a lot more just like, there's a lot more humor in it, right? Yeah. Something that occurred to me just then when you said like it, it's it's terrible, but it doesn't feel real. It definitely feels like a fairy tale type of bad, like a Cinderella has to scrub the floors every day or whatever. <laughs> Like that's the kind of situation they're in, but like the slap is definitely like a moment of like realness, I guess. Yeah, I do think it's interesting that you said the fairy tale thing because I definitely think that that's a part of it. Like the book is satirical in that way, right? Because their situation is so, it just gets so bad that it's almost, it is it is ridiculous actually. So I think, you know, the book is, kind of making fun of those kinds of stories where it's like oh the main character is in such an awful place and they're basically just treated like dirt and it's so horrible so it's like making fun of that even at the same time that does feel kind of real but like the thing that I thought about the movie especially was that it just like put all of that into overdrive like I think both of the adaptations made it much more clear that it was satire with like Jim Carrey's over-the-top acting and like the jokes in the TV show and like Neil Patrick Harris he even says something in the TV show that was like like when they're scrubbing the floors in their room he comes in and is like it's time for the ball mm. or whatever yeah. so like that was definitely a reference to Cinderella yeah something else that I just remembered from like the movie is it actually starts with like this weird like I don't know if it's claymation but this weird mm-hmm. animation of like this happy little elf village and it's like this elf comes out of his house and is like singing and dancing in the forest and then all of a sudden it's like the lights cut and then Lemony Snicket is like this is not that kind of story (laughs) so it's actually yeah I like how you said it puts like the satire element into overdrive like it really it really does and that's like a huge difference between the movie and the book I think in my notes for the book I wrote misery porn question mark because <laughs> I think that's what it is yeah that, no, that's definitely true and like that's another part that I was questioning and I talked to you guys a little bit before this you know in our off podcast conversations <laughs> um, we have some time <laughs> yes <laughs> about like like how much is this book actually trying to deal with real pain and how much is it really just like using it as a source of entertainment and like making fun of it like what I was referring to before was like the fact that their parents died right but they don't really like talk about like it's not really a big part of the plot right there are very few moments in the book where they actually reflect on what their parents were like or how much they miss them even though there is a little bit and it happens at the very beginning too which is like you know when you want a character death to be significant you'd wait until the reader has like formed a connection with them so and it read to me as just like a plot device and it's just something that had to happen for the story to work yeah so I wouldn't say that this is a book that really deals with like death and grief you know or trauma I think it's more about how like as readers 
this kind of stuff as entertainment is appealing to us. And I don't know, what does that say about us? <laughs> well, it yeah. is marketed towards kids. So I don't think they're trying to be like, kids love misery. <laughs> or they love reveling in the misery of other people or whatever. I don't know. But don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, I part of it is like the struggle, right? And this could be said for like a lot of books, but you, you want characters to struggle and then like do things that are very interesting or brave or clever and that's like what makes you read books and like characters and that stuff can't happen unless something bad happens basically but in this book it's kind of intense right the amount of bad things that happen yeah can I say something about the movie that touches on <laughs> grief yeah <laughs> okay um yeah, there is this like really great part in the movie, but it like is within the context of the second book actually. So I'll just be brief. Mm -hmm. It's actually, can I spoil the second book? Yes, that's fine. It's when like Count Olaf basically has their uncle killed, who's actually their uncle and they actually loved and spent time with him. And like the reader spends time with him throughout the book. It's one of the saddest moments. Um, and like, it's it's Lemony Snicket narrating out loud, but he he's like taking basically line for line from the book. And he describes it as, like losing a loved one is when you're walking up the stairs of your home in the dark, but then you miss a step. You think there's another step there, but you miss a step and like your heart drops. And I always like that line always sticks out to me as like one of the greatest like lines in the movie. And I'm, I think it's also in the book. Um, so that is, it is interesting how like the parents don't get any like grief, but I think that with Uncle Monty who comes later, they like delve into that emotion a little bit more. I don't know, to me, the second book has always stuck out as like, one of the most like impactful ones it's interesting the first one definitely feels like a lot more one dimensional compared to that yeah there is kind of a line like that in the first book where it's like if you have lost a loved one like you know how it feels but if you haven't then you could never understand or whatever like that sort of thing yeah. but it's not as it's not as poetic as <laughs> yeah yeah and also i guess in both of those cases like that's just lemony snicket telling us how we should feel but it's yeah. not like the orphans <laughs> themselves like reacting to anyone's like death so it's true yeah I I have trouble like thinking about that in my mind um like balancing the fact that it kind of is satire and like using this you know format and this formula of story to as like a little bit of a joke and as entertainment with the fact that some parts do feel really real, you know, like the parts where like adults don't believe you when you're a kid. And also like, like I saw that in the movie too. There was emphasis on like losing people. And also like, I think this is what like way more played up in the movie, the feeling of like home and family and what that means. Cause I remember there was a scene in the movie that doesn't happen in the book where the kids they build like a fort and then yeah like in the fort you can see like their shadows and there's also like the shadow of their mom and dad and then it kind of shows that like they are one family like they're thinking of their parents and that they miss them and I feel yeah that element was really played up in the movie hmm. I totally agree with you the more I think about it I feel like the first book while it's really good doesn't have as much depth as it could with those types of emotions. And I think potentially that gets better as the series goes along. But yeah, it definitely is like a very plot driven thing. But I think that's just like the nature of book series because you can never like linger on something too long. Like you have to create the new conflict for like the next book to start almost. Especially with like these fast paced like children's books, I guess. That's true. I think the fact that Lemony Snicket narrates it too kind of makes it a bit more impersonal. <laughs> like when, uh, like he, like you were saying before, it's the fact that he's describing what they're feeling and you don't like get inside their heads. <laughs> you just kind of have to take his word for it. <laughs> they don't really feel like real characters in that way, I don't think, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never really thought about that until you mentioned it. But I guess it does, yeah, it's kind of like a distancing effect, right? you're not actually in their head. And I guess that kind of explains why there's not 
yeah, that much about their thoughts of their parents and things like that. Because all of that would be going on inside of them and not like they wouldn't talk about it all the time. Yeah, I wonder if the reason why it's like that is because, you know, the first book, it, it, it's not, it doesn't really feel like it's about death or anything like that. Um, I wonder if that was kind if that was kind of a way of making it so that it can be part of the story, but not like too real, you know, having like Lemony Snicket be the, like the Spencer of this information. It, it makes their suffering a little less terrible. Like, would you say? I definitely agree. Yeah. I'm not like a hundred percent certain why that's the choice. <laughs> I'm like thinking about it the more we're talking about it, like why that's the choice he made. Um, Cause even something Hannah said about like, them not feeling like real characters I think that's a pretty big deal like I mean you know Sunny doesn't really talk or anything but even like Violet and Klaus's voices like when they speak often they don't have a ton of emotion I would say they're so formal yeah they're very formal so it might just be like language choice but they feel even when they say things like I miss our parents like they just don't (laughs) like they don't have like that hint of emotion really in my opinion, at least. Um, and they just kind of say things and like move on from it almost. It's weird, like the way that they they don't feel like real characters all the time. Yeah, I don't know. I think it it is a way of including things like heavy topics, like kind like abusive behavior by Count Olaf and things like that. It's a way of saying that in a way that you can talk about it, but isn't too scary, I guess, for kids. Yeah. I think that might be a part of it. That's true. If you like actually made it like a realistic depiction of like how would a child like react and develop in this situation, that would be like a very dark story. (laughs) So yeah, that's true. Were there any other things about the movie or the TV show that you guys wanted to talk about? I am very interested in the portrayal of Count Olaf in each of them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah? (laughs) Very interested. What are your thoughts? Uh, I just feel like they almost feel like three different characters. Mm. which is so strange yeah and I guess to give a little bit of detail on that and then I want to know what you guys think but Count Olaf in the book feels very just like distant and evil and pretty flat and not fun kind of as we were talking about (laughs) and then obviously Jim Carrey's Count Olaf is really funny and like makes it all seem like a satire and he doesn't even like I don't know I guess he strikes like Klaus in the movie but it's like doesn't I don't, I don't know. I just don't get, you know, the bad vibes from him. And then Neil Patrick Harris was just really creepy and I didn't like him. <laughs> even though like he had jokes and was trying to be funny. I just, I don't know. Um, maybe I'm biased, but I felt like he came off as more creepy. Like that was his whole thing. Like he was still evil and he was still counting off like over the top and stuff, but he was like creepy this time. Like I don't know when we talked about when we talked about off podcast like how he made a really weird comment about violet in the tv show yeah um so yeah That's that was true. my thoughts yeah the way he reacts because it's such a you kind of have to tread carefully as lemony snicket around like you're making an adult man marry a child <laughs> how are yeah. you going to portray that in a way that's not like absolutely vile and disgusting because <laughs> you like understand that it's like a bad thing but like, you don't understand how bad it is if you're a kid or whatever. But in the yeah. movie, I don't actually remember how he acted towards Violet. But in the TV show, Neil Patrick Harris was like, I can touch whatever I want. And he like grabs yeah. Violet's shoulder and it's gross. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I think the book and the TV show are very true to, to each other in a lot of ways. Like, I think Neil Patrick Harris's depiction of Count Olaf is very similar to the one in the book in that it's like he's not like a he's not flamboyant or anything like that <laughs> and yeah I think he kind of is okay Sorry, you're right. I just wanted to number. acknowledge that he had a musical <laughs> number yeah there was that musical <laughs> number um but it was like he yeah he was more creepy and kind of threatening yeah. as opposed to like jolly I guess yeah <laughs> and I think both the book and the tv show had those elements of like weird you know, sexual intentions that Count Olaf had. Because I think in the book, like he says things like, he refers to Violet's like pretty face multiple times. And he says, you know, after 
the play and we get married, I'm not going to, you know, throw you away like Klaus and Sonny. Like you can stay with me basically. <laughs> and so I think the TV show, like, like Hannah said about that weird scene where he grabs onto her shoulder that I think that that was keeping true to like what actually happened in the book. I don't know. When I was listening to the book, I was like, trying to listen out for like if anything like crossed the line like how he treated Violet I don't know for some reason the way he portrayed it it didn't seem too like over the top disgusting to me do you mean the book sorry I was looking at my book I found a quote that is relevant (laughs) (laughs) let's hear it yeah it's not in it's not as bad as Neil Patrick Harris but when the hook cannon man is on the walkie-talkie with Count Olaf and he's just captured Violet and he's talking to Count Olaf. He says, I don't know, boss. Yes, boss. Yes, boss. Of course. I understand. She's yours. Oh, yeah. And he, like, has her in the tower, like, trapped or whatever. I don't know. That was the one part in the book where I think that was, like, the worst it got. But then, like, Neil Patrick Harris made it worse. <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. get to a new level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, do you guys have any thoughts of, on, like, like, why include that as the plot? you know, the plot point for the, the final scene. Like mm. choosing it to be a marriage. Yeah, like a like a child yeah. marriage, you yeah. know. I mean, how else could he have like found a loophole yeah. for their fortune, I guess? Yeah, it's very it's... practical. And now I'm in my head trying to think if there was like a better or different way <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> for Count Olaf to like get legal rights to the fortune. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I wasn't thinking about in terms of the plot, but I guess, like, why Lemony Snicket, or Daniel Handler, or whatever, like, why he yeah. would choose to, like, include that in a book for kids, because I think you're right, Hannah, it's, it's, it's a very tricky thing, because he doesn't actually say, like, Count Olaf is, like, <laughs> sexually attracted to this 14-year-old girl, even yeah. though, like, I think we as adults can definitely see that, that it's, like, hinting towards that, but he still includes it, yeah. I don't know. I, I think just I, to make him seem evil. But yeah, carry on. What were you saying? Oh, I was saying, yeah, that was I that was basically what I was saying is I think he might have just chosen it because it like practically made sense and like didn't have any plot holes or whatever. I think he treaded around it pretty well in the book in terms of not making it seem so gross. Like he wasn't making it seem like they were gonna or like <laughs> Count Olaf was like attracted to her or whatever, in my opinion. Because every time they said like your pretty little face or whatever it just sounded like cartoonishly evil to me and not like a not like they were actually making advances on her or anything i don't know i kind of maybe this is me just read it into things <laughs> i thought it was really creepy and i definitely like i felt that way the whole time and i think it's important i think it's important for the ending of the book because she is the one who saves the day right and I actually want us to read that passage because I think there are a couple of things going on there. She's the one who saves the day and she's also simultaneously like the victim or like, you know what I mean? She's the one that he's like using to basically win and she's the one who gets everybody out of it. So in that way, I kind of thought that that was interesting, possibly semi-feminist. <laughs> And something that I didn't like about the movie was that they totally changed that, right? Yeah, like, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, like instead of Violet being the one to, you know, sign with her left hand and that's what invalidates the marriage, it's Klaus who just like burns up the certificate and saves the day. And I was like, why did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It's not a very action-packed climax, is it, in the book? It's like, aha! I signed it with my other hand. Okay. <laughs> but in the well, movie. <laughs> we should read we should read it. Cause I have some thoughts about why that is. Okay. I, I was that was gonna be my answer too, Hannah. Uh-huh. Like Hollywood. <laughs> I had to get like some fire involved. Yeah. They needed a pyrotechnics department <laughs> to yeah. do something. I'm trying to look up the pages. Ah. Well, like the very first line of Chapter 13 is Count Olaf being like, oh, yes, I'm now married for real. (laughs) And, like, announcing it to everyone. Okay. I think we should start where Violet says, I'm not your countess. Okay. What are our roles? Oh, there's so many characters. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I don't know how we're going to do this. (laughs) 
Well, Mr. Poe is here, so I'll be here. <laughs> Wait, um, I only, I see Violet, Count Olaf. Mr. Poe, Justice Strauss. Oh, Justice Strauss, okay, yeah. Uh, and narrator. <laughs> yeah. Can I be um, Count Olaf as well? <laughs> okay, okay, well, everybody's gotta remember what they're doing well, for this to I can, work. I can be Justice Strauss and Violet. Okay. I don't know if there's anyone else. And I'll be narrator? Yeah, okay, Klaus also talks a little bit. I can also be Klaus. Okay, you also be Klaus. <laughs> and Sunny's there. <laughs> okay, what? Where's Nepo? Where's uh, Okay, wait. It. But when I get there, I, I will do okay. it. Okay, okay. Does everybody remember your positions? <laughs> yeah, I'm I the feel old like man. Hannah can just be the older men and I'll just yeah. be everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. as it should be. Okay, well then, Violet, why don't oh, you boy. begin? Okay. I'm not your countess. Violet said testily, a word which here means in an extremely annoyed tone. At least I don't think I am. And why is that? Count Olaf said. I did not sign the document in my own hand, as the law states. Violet said. What do you mean? We all saw you. Count Olaf's eyebrow was beginning to rise in anger. I'm afraid your husband is right, dear. Justice Strauss said sadly. There's no use denying it. There are too many witnesses. Like most people, Violet said, I am right-handed, but I signed the document with my left hand. What? Count Olaf cried. He snatched the paper from Justice Strauss and looked down at it. His eyes were shining very bright. You are a liar. He hissed at Violet. No, she's not. Klaus said excitedly. I remember because I watched her left hand trembling as she signed her name. It is impossible to prove, Count Olaf said. If you like, Violet said, I shall be happy to sign my name again on a separate sheet of paper with my right hand and then with my left. Then we can see which signature the one on the document most resembles. A small detail, like which hand you use to sign, Count Olaf said, doesn't matter in the least. If you don't mind, sir, Mr. Poe said. I'd like Justice Strauss to make that decision. Everyone looked at Justice Strauss, who was wiping away the last of her tears. Let me see, she said quietly and closed her eyes again. She sighed deeply, and the Baudelaire orphans, and all who liked them, held their breath as Justice Strauss furrowed her brow, thinking hard on the situation. Finally, she smiled. If Violet is indeed right-handed, she said carefully, and she signed the document with her left hand, then it follows that the signature does not fulfill the requirements of the nuptial laws. The law clearly states the document must be signed in the bride's own hand. Therefore, we can conclude that this marriage is invalid. Violet, you are not a countess, and Count Olaf, you are not in control of the Baudelaire fortune. Hooray! <laughs> Cried a voice from the audience, <laughs> and several people <laughs> applauded. Unless you are a lawyer, it will probably strike you as odd that Count Olaf's plan was defeated by Violet signing with her left hand instead of her right. But the law is an odd thing. For instance, one country in Europe has a law that requires all its bakers to sell bread at the exact same price. A certain island has a law that forbids anyone from removing its fruit. And a town not too far from where you live has a law that bars me from coming within five miles of its borders. Had Violet signed the marriage contract with her right hand, the law would have made her a miserable contessa. But because she signed it with her left, she remained, to her relief, a miserable orphan. And that will be the end of this passage. <laughs> cool. We did well. <laughs> but yes. So this is how, like, he's defeated in the book, right? And you guys mentioned that it's, like, really anticlimactic, which I agree with. And I agree that in the, like, in the movie, it's, like, oh, much more exciting that he's, like, burning it <laughs> with a magnifying glass. Um, but I feel like that's kind of the point, is that it's like making fun of adults again, pretty much, that like their laws are really stupid and Violet basically succeeded on the technicality. Because that's kind of, I think, a theme throughout the book is that like adults do things according to all these rules that don't actually make sense. Like the fact that Mr. Poe put the kids with Count Olaf in the first place, the fact that he doesn't, well, I guess like the listening to them part is more his personality because he really should listen to them but like also at the end the fact that justice strauss wants to like have them live with her 
and she's obviously like the most qualified person and she cares about them but because of the law you know she wasn't allowed to do that so the fact that Violet was able to like use it and that's like very empowering for kids but it also just shows like yeah adults are really ridiculous yeah I think it fits thematically very well but I didn't think about it that way until just now yeah so I feel like in the movie it's like lost because he just burns off in the air like the certificate (laughs) Um, but they kept it in the tv show which was nice Violet tried to do that in the movie but then Count Olaf noticed and threatened to like release Sunny and so she like switched hands speaking of that ending I was wondering if you had guys had any thoughts on like you know how this book ended versus how the movie and the tv show end I know we talked about a little bit off podcast Mm -hmm. um I also wanted us to kind of read that part too I want somebody else to be (laughs) let me snick it now um I can do it (laughs) yeah can you start at the part where like the Baudelaire orphans piled into the back seat. Okay, so I'll just read to the end. The Baudelaire orphans piled into the back seat and peered out the back window at Justice Strauss, who was crying and waving to them. Ahead of them were the darkened streets where Count Olaf had escaped to plan more treachery. Behind them was the kind judge who had taken such an interest in the three children. To Violet, Klaus, and Sonny, it seemed that Mr. Poe and the law had made the incorrect decision to take them away from the possibility of a happy life with Justice Strauss and toward an unknown fate with some unknown relative. They didn't understand it, but like so many unfortunate events in life, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it isn't so. The Baudelaire's bunched up together against the cold night air and kept waving out the back window. The car drove farther and farther away until Justice Strauss was merely a speck in the darkness, and it seemed to the children that they were ver- they were moving in an aberrant, the word aberrant me- here means very, very wrong and causing much grief, direction and apparently I don't know that word either (laughs) I thought it was pronounced aberrant it probably is (laughs) I've never heard anybody say that word out loud so who knows yeah it's a very bleak ending and the movie I think if I remember right like is much more hopeful yeah I have a I have a quote from the movie Mm mm-hmm Basically, at the end, Lemmy Snicket goes through this. He has a speech where he's basically like, even though there's a lot of bad in the world, there's a lot more good in the world than bad. And bad is just the beginning of like a journey, basically. So he says all that stuff. And then I think literally the last sign is like, the Baudelaire's were very fortunate indeed. So that was a lot of editorializing. And then, like we talked about, previously like before this podcast like the tv show it ends with a glimpse of like what seems like their parents still alive so that's very hopeful oh yeah but i will argue that the movie also ends with a glimpse of their parents still being alive when they receive the letter but i guess that's more it's like more vague because in the tv show it literally has like actors playing their mother and father (laughs) right Um, that was weird yeah something else we talked about that's like related though is the like in the tv show everything feels like more hopeful because they have all these allies and then like you said it very clearly like shows that their parents are still alive so it's like you know that someone's watching out for them whereas you don't get that at all really in the book or the movie and i think that like shifts how you view it a lot yeah well i mean like what which one which ending do you guys like better I don't know it's kind of different because the movie is a self-contained thing and it contains two of the other books as well like with the characters from those books and the plots from those books so it kind of has to end hopefully otherwise people will be like there's gonna be a sequel and then yeah. the books there is a sequel there's 13 sequels so it's like it kind of has to end on a cliffhanger where it's like and more bad things will happen <laughs> and the tv show too it's serial so like you know <laughs> Well, the movie was designed to be a series of movies too like each yeah like well they stopped after the first one <laughs> i'm not i'm not sure why but it was supposed to be like each movie is going to have like three or something books that's interesting hmm. yeah 
okay so with that in mind like you can assume then that like the choice to make it positive wasn't like an intentional like change from the book um and I think I liked that I mean <laughs> it made me feel good but also it is like I like how it has like these moments where you kind of like take a breath and step back from the sadness because I just feel like that's very true to life um like when they're when they were in like transport to the next place um at the end of the movie like they still can like step back and like take in their situation and be like we're okay we have each other and it's kind of just like the moment when they're living with Count Olaf where they have like that nice little moment where they remember their parents. It's just like these breaks from, I guess, like we were talking about before, just like the constant awful stuff. I think that that's really smart to have. So I, I liked that ending of the movie a lot. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> it's a very sentimental, right? Maybe and I'm just sentimental. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I felt even in the movie when they had that scene with their parents, it was really sweet, but I was also like, okay, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I really, I found myself like thinking about this book and thinking about Oliver Twist <laughs> at the same time. Um, Cause it's like orphans. And if you've ever read Oliver Twist, I've only read half of Oliver Twist because <laughs> that's, I couldn't do it, but it's basically just like about an orphan who like every single chapter is just something new and horrible happening to him and I think it's very sentimental and it's like oh this poor boy <laughs> and <laughs> stuff like that so I don't know if I like that kind of thing there's definitely not very much of it in the book I kind I think it's more realistic to the plot of the book I guess that there's not just like a positive spin you know at the end because the characters wouldn't actually feel that way when they were just taken away from like the only adult that cared about them. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's definitely a thing that like adults would want to do to this story, I feel, to like make it have a happy ending in adaptations. Just so like, yeah, kids watching it aren't gonna be like, the world is a hopeless place, I guess. <laughs> but the book, it's like, showing that sometimes things don't you know work out and that's just life and it doesn't matter if it's if you've been like super clever or like a good person like that's just how it is yeah I do I do like that aspect of it where he says like like you just said like just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it isn't so I think that's like a really valuable lesson to have so I can see the value of both I think yeah I mean, I wonder because, you know, like the movie and the TV show eventually it, oh, just like a disclaimer, we only watched the first two episodes because that was those that covered like the events of the bad beginning, the movie. Yeah. You know, it covered multiple books. I wonder if it, that more sentimental stuff, like just, it's more of like what happens in later books, like you said, because they deal more with like actual grief of a character. Um, I was going to say something else too. Oh, and just like, like, yeah, harping on like the fact that they're like a family and like they have each other. That was like a lot more prominent in the way that the movie and the TV show ended. And I'm, I'm thinking like, maybe that's more of like what's talked about in later books. But the first book is very just like, this is the only beginning of the only, be only the beginning of their troubles. So it's different. It's true. I feel like like the the in the fact that the narration is kind of fun and like is like downplaying their grief a little bit in the book by not like being in their heads like the focus is more on like the adventure and the story so I feel like with the ending being like something new and bad will happen to them next time it's like oh I want to know what that is that sounds interesting and I was entertained by the first book so let's keep going <laughs> it's more misery porn Misery porn. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Was there anything else about the book, the movie, or the TV show that you guys wanted to talk about? Oh, yeah. I, I discovered that there were a lot of relatable statements in there or whatever, like parts <laughs> where <laughs> Lemony Snicket was like relating to the audience. He was like, like, uh, when they were like really upset, I guess it was, I don't remember when it was. I think it was around when they made like the dinner or whatever. 
he was like, you find if you cry, it can make you feel better, even if your circumstances stay the same, like stuff like that. And then there was another part where he was like, I'm sure you as well have at some point wanted to be raised by different people or whatever. And I was like, wow, it's kind of radical for a kid's book to say. <laughs> like, oh yeah, didn't you say this book is banned in some places or something? Yeah, so it's a, it's what's called a challenged book, um, which is like, yeah, like certain places, like certain kids' libraries or like schools or whatever have taken it off their shelves or tried to. It had an interesting trivia fact that like Daniel Handler started this grant fund thing for librarians. He set up a prize in 2014 for librarians standing up to adversity, which meant like challenging bans on books. So he was very aware of the fact that there are some themes or whatever messages in this book that adults don't want kids to hear. So you think it's because of being too real with kids about like Lemony Snicket? Yeah, maybe. I don't know, just that one line. I was like, I can see why some parents would be like, how dare he say that <laughs> or whatever. You should never want to leave your parents, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> but I don't know if that's enough, if that one line is enough to justify it being banned. I think that's a line that I didn't think about, but I guess as a parent, like, yeah, you really wouldn't. <laughs> you might not want that to be in a book. That, but that kind of like goes along with the other th big theme, which is like, you know, life sometimes sucks and is bad, even through like no fault of your own. You can't choose your parents. You can't choose a lot of the things that happen to you, but like, that's just the way that it is. And you should focus on the things that are in your control. So that's kind of a message that maybe parents don't want their kids to be exposed to, that like the world is not just a happy, hopeful place, I guess. Oh, it's such a good message though. <laughs> and I mean, when I was a kid reading it, like I don't remember specifically what my reaction was, but I know like it didn't make me just like hate my life or like hate the world, <laughs> you know? I just kind of like read it and was like, wow, look at this stuff that can just happen to you for like no reason. So I don't know if that helped me or not, but I, I don't know. I think it's an interesting message to have. And I don't know if I've seen that in other kids' books. So I'm fine with it. <laughs> if it were my kid reading oh. the book. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, as we're drawn to a close, <laughs> um, what, what should be our, we want to set up a way to grade books or yeah. review the books. Yeah. So what would be the right way to, to do that at the end of every podcast? Well, <laughs> we could do, would you? <laughs> Either like, would you, would you, would you nurture and care for this book and raise it as your own? Or... <laughs> Would you let your, would you encourage your kid to read this book? Something like that. I'd never want kids. So that's not a good question. <laughs> would you encourage a Ray child? child? <laughs> <laughs> Very personable that. <laughs> would, would you make this book your child? <laughs> but what does that say if you say no? If you say yes, even. <laughs> yeah. It's a very edgy child. <laughs> I think that this would this book would be my child <laughs> oh, so that's the question we're going on. i don't know it's, this would is this, really bad this would is this a bad be your child well, i don't even question <laughs> well yeah like i don't even know like what that even says about if this book is good or yeah. not um, basically i like this book i think it has good lessons to teach <laughs> kids and i think like even now I really relate to it and I think it has good messages like for adults too like especially about like bad stuff happens sometimes that's okay it's not your fault you just got to work with it I, I would yes carry Hannah, on. go ahead Me? no you go <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I would nurture this book as my own <laughs> But I would encourage it to pursue multiple interests and be a little bit more interesting 
as a wow. person. <laughs> you can't say that about your kid. Well, I can if it's a book. <laughs> if it's a hypothetical book child, in which case, yes, I wish my child was more interesting. Me, I thought this book was fantastic and illuminating <laughs> and revolutionary because... <laughs> <laughs> no, literally, I, I truly do think like it stands out among children's series for all the reasons we've talked about. Like, it, I think it does a lot of unique things. However, this conversation has made me think about ways that it could be more interesting or like engaging, I guess. Um, but then another caveat to that is that I do think that it gets better as it goes on with these issues of like the characters being kind of flat and stuff like that. Well, that's the podcast. <laughs> what a great outro. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, aka my professor, for listening to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> stay tuned for our next book, which we haven't picked yet, but I'm sure it's going to be good. This has been Chelsea. Thank Nana. you. <laughs> <laughs> Signing off. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Okay. Bye. <laughs>